Welcome to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This podcast delivers insights on medical device packaging from regulatory affairs, process management, as well as discussions on the latest in sterile device packaging technologies. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, speaks with global experts to bring the most relevant information to our esteemed listeners. As sterile packaging compliance becomes increasingly more challenging, it is vital to avoid information gaps that could risk your medical device packaging program. Avoid package failure risks and build your skill set from your colleagues' experience and from insights from sterile device packaging subject matter experts. You're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, Spot Radio. Hello, everyone. It's me again, Charlie Webb, and as usual, I'll be your host here as we chat about the medical device game or the uh, medical device packaging. That's kind of our stick around here. Got a really cool guy on the phone with us today. His name's Jeremy Stakowitz. Jeremy, looking through his bio here, kind of typical stuff, actually not so typical at all. He's got a Dartmouth undergrad science degree. He's a warden MBA in healthcare management, 25 years in healthcare, 15 years of that in diagnostics. He's with the company Sinzo. They've developed a COVID-19 seven-minute rapid test that they say is as accurate as the PCR, and they utilize a, a system called amplified lateral flow, and we're going to talk a little bit about how that works. We're also going to talk about sort of the future of telemedicine and how home diagnostic systems like this are going to support that aim. You know, that's the biggest missing piece, I think, when we're talking about telemedicine is great, but you know what? We need the test, right? So we need to give some datum to the physician so they're able to support the discussion we're going to have. And obviously, we're sort of stabbing in the dark if we don't have those hard metrics to support that discussion. So we're going to have that conversation right now. And I got Jeremy on the phone. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for hanging out with me today. So great to have you here with me. Hi, Charlie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about, you know, we were all part of this. Our company was in the fast deployment mode in 2020. I mean, we didn't even know if we were essential workers there for a while. Crazy times we were all in. Tell us how this uh, went and how this all sort of started. Yeah, so uh, Senzo has been around for about five years. We've been working on a couple of different technology platforms. We're in in vitro diagnostics and specifically focus on point of care applications and have a couple of different platforms that are still in development phase to products market. But one of those kind of product lines is lateral flow tests. And we were working development efforts this past summer, so the summer of 2021, and came across a pretty interesting discovery, worked on it, and we've come up with a really innovative approach to using lateral flow that's all the great things we've come to, maybe begrudgingly, but come to know and love about lateral flow tests that easy to use, can be used at home, can be used in a professional setting, you know, room temperature, easy to ship, easy to read out, inexpensive. But our technology and our technological leap was really around better sensitivity, better performance of these tests while maintaining the specificity and the cost of their pieces. So we were able to, with a much faster time to resolve, get much, much better performance from a sensitivity standpoint. And from an analytical standpoint, we're really able to detect targets at the PCR level. So This is a platform technology, but seeing as though we were and still are in the middle of a pandemic, we thought that a COVID application made a lot of sense to go for that first. And so really out of last summer, we've rolled through 
the fall and now into the beginning of 2022. And we're about to go into clinical trials for our COVID product. And and again, it was kind of a discovery on the bench on a hypothesis we were working on. And it turns out that it is unique. So we filed IP around it and, and believe that it is a unique approach. But we've now generated a lot of in-house and third-party data that suggests that this platform, whether applied to COVID or something else, can really offer PCR level of detection with this simple at-home lateral flow device. So there's a lot of other test kits that are run around. I think I have a couple on standby in case I need to check me or my my people yeah. for COVID. We had it uh, in March. We had it before the vaccine was even available. And I tell you that that variant was a tough one. But how do you know when you're in the product development life cycle, particularly something like this? I mean, people um, in general, not just the rank and file of humanoids, but even particularly in industry as well, we sort of lose momentum sometime. How do you maintain a product life cycle when we're not sure where this is going to arc? I mean, we're going to get to the point where we just uh, are no longer interested in testing ourselves for COVID. How do you frame that on a on a marketing side? How do you look at that as a business development platform for your company or a, an opportunity where you're obviously putting a lot of money and time and effort into development of a product like this? It could be a flash in the the night. I mean, how do you uh, sort of look at its longevity and the health of a interest for a product like this? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I sort of think of this two different ways. It's kind of the hand we're all dealt by being in healthcare in that you need to convert science, biochemistry, and engineering into a product that has clinical and medical value, generally speaking. And, and that's tricky. And if everyone could do it, there are certainly days where I would like to just go make t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel uh, you, brother. <laughs> I've been in this industry for 26 years and somebody asked me once, it seems like a great industry. I'm like, well, you know, it's uh, may not have been the one I chose. I love it now, but certainly has a lot of its challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And the regulatory challenges, scientific challenges, manufacturing challenges. But I think at the end of the day, you're creating novel products that help the world. And generally speaking, that has a financial benefit connected to it. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, to your original question, I think there's two different ways that plays out. Sometimes you have a technology and you're chasing a market. You're trying to figure out how can I make this cool technology fit somewhere? And as you're doing that, markets shift. New competition comes out. Markets grow. They shrink. Maybe that's where we are with COVID. I don't think anyone knows exactly what the next 12 months will look like. And then other times you have an obvious, if my product can do this, this market will be revolutionized. No one else is going to be able to do it before I get there. But 10 years later, you're still trying to make the product work. Mm -hmm. So I've been down that path as well. So there's always, and I think there's the balance of sometimes you need to know when to quit. You need to know when to pivot, but sometimes you just need to accept that, okay, this took three years and many millions of dollars longer, more than I thought but we're on the right path. We're almost there. The reason we started this, that unmet need in the marketplace still exists. And I think that gets to the essence of your question when you're trying to motivate employees, staff, everyone, investors to still keep interested and keep working. And we're almost there. It combines a lot of different things of motivation and and financing and creativity. So, you know, I've seen kind of both versions of that. I think for us, 
we're hedging in that we discovered this platform and we'd like to take advantage of the COVID market because we see that, look, a lot of companies have brought lateral flow tests in the market. I congratulate and thank them for all of their work. And as you alluded to, I think they've had a big part as much as vaccines in a lot of ways, especially with this last variant in helping us get to some semblance of normality. Mm-hmm. But the reality is those tests all are deficient in identifying disease early. And there are absolutely people get infected, are contagious, and are testing negative on rapid tests and spreading disease to their families, schools, communities, employers. No fault of the current manufacturers. They're certainly better than nothing, but the technology limitations of these tests don't allow you to find in that window COVID or lots of other diseases when optimally you would, and and we're able to do that with our technology. So we think, I hope we move from pandemic to endemic. I hope the amount of testing goes way down, but we think there's still going, next September, when you wake up with a sore throat or the sniffles, gone are the days where you just ignored it and went to work it anyway, or maybe ignored it and stayed home. People are going to continue to test. I think it just evolves into how much, how many, And we think having a better test, which is what Senzo offers, has real value in the market. And of course, there's always lateral opportunities that are born from them. There's a lot of considerate tuition for a lot of things that you'll learn in the development and other places where the technology can go. We're certainly not at the end of infectious disease, and that provides other opportunities. I think in our developmental pathway here, we have, uh, I have a patent pending, or actually just marked patent on a containment system for packaging of human tissue and it has a great amount of value you know we can't sterilize human tissue really we have to sort of aseptically process it so the packaging part of that is difficult we're using machines that can get contaminated and so i developed a uh, prophylactic system that that sort of firewalls the infectious material between that and the uh, machinery that's being used and it has a great value but unfortunately it's one of those things where we spent so much money and time on this technology and it's such a micro niche that it's difficult um, when we look at all of the spreadsheet how do we monetize the sort of questions that arise here in the uh, boardroom but sometimes you know when you just innovate for helping a problem or solving a problem it seems like the universe kind of pays you back by giving you other lateral opportunities in the marketplace. A lot of that work that you've done early on certainly doesn't reach a cul-de-sac. Typically, that can be reimagined into another point of care. So I suspect moving forward, what you've discovered during this process will serve you in other corners of infectious disease as well, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's the obvious next step iteration of this product. So as I mentioned, just the regular Senzo, we call it ALF. It's Amplified Lateral Flow, ALF COVID Test. We're moving into clinical trials in the U.S. in March. So we're going through the FDA EUA process. A fast follow to that, as you move outside of COVID, COVID is kind of products were approved because we needed something. And so we're competing against those products with what we think is better performance. But when you move beyond COVID, it's much more binary. The reason that there are no at-home tests for hep C is not necessarily because no one thinks that's a good idea. It's because the technology isn't good enough up until now to offer that and have that be compelling to healthcare professionals, 
and scientists, we think we can do that. So it's much more of a no one can develop currently a lateral flow test for XYZ, but because of our sensitivity and performance, we can go into all sorts of markets and really convert what is usually central lab, hospital, reference lab testing, PCR-based. If you can match that performance, which we can, then the sky's the limit of where you take it and how that kind of plays out in how testing works. But a good example is we're working on a respiratory triplex ALF that is COVID plus RSV plus influenza. Not a novel idea. Some of the PCR guys have already licensed these, but again, it's novel for lateral flow. And most of the other rapid antigen tests are going to struggle to be good enough to do the RSV and flu piece, whereas we can. And so that's an easy kind of one-click orientation over to include something that'll be really useful. So when you do wake up with that sore throat and you go, oh, great, I don't have COVID, well, I still have something. Mm -hmm. And to then know that it's flu or RSV, and then maybe you do a quick teledoc and get get a prescription for a flu therapeutic, that hasn't happened in the past because people haven't been able to diagnose and get treated early enough for it to really matter to impact your flu trajectory. So that's one example. Another one, which I think fits into your sort of betterment of the world, tuberculosis is a giant problem in Africa with the, how it's diagnosed, underdiagnosed, and then how it's treated. And that's kind of an interesting one because in a way, treatment has outstripped diagnosis for tuberculosis. If you intervene early, there's actually great treatments. It's that no one's diagnosed and there's co-infection with HIV, which complicates it. So there is a great medical opportunity there for us to create a tuberculosis test that is cheap, easy to use, put 10,000 on the back of a truck and has all kinds of implications for a region. And I think that's something we'd love to do as a company. I think that's also why NGOs and other WHO, Gates, et cetera, exist to drive those kinds of product innovations and bringing products to market that you wouldn't necessarily think of or would make sense to monetize standalone. So, or you bring a product that is quite profitable in the US and Europe and then subsidize it to get into other areas and regions where it's also needed. So there's, I think, lots of permutations to that. Yeah, you know, the, uh, I think the flu diagnostic piece is so important. You know, it's been kind of the holy grail, I think. We, by the time we go to a clinic or urgent care and spread something around that has a much more dangerous implication to be able to have that datum, that little bit of information early on, as you say, a teledoc uh, keeps people at home. And I think a lot of great things are going to bloom from this mindset, the sort of shift of the stay at home or remote everything right now is kind of on the tips of the tongue of everyone. One of the challenges that we had during 2020, when we were in the uh, rapid deployment, we were helping a lot of companies who were pivoting from different diagnostic tools. Uh, We were a big part of packaging the nasal pharyngeal swabs for early testing mechanisms the problem in packaging, that's my business, is we, um, we have to validate that containment system, the sterile barrier system. And sometimes, depending on the class device, challenges with that part, we could be several months into a package validation. So we had to look at ways where we could truncate that process, uh, get ahead of some of the steps, and, and really even sort of aggregate things that we already know and make some broader assumptions where we could add some statistical science to it and say that 
knowing what we've known, state of the uh, industry stuff, we should be able to grant acceptance based on a lot of, of just hard data that's been gathered over the last 20 years. So when you're packaging a product like this, obviously this is a part that has to be, uh, now are you selling these? These are sterile, yeah? Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. And I think packaging comes in two parts here. One is my experience has been developing and launching products that are for laboratory use, professional use for the most part, whether that's a $100,000 instrument or a set of reagent red cells, they are packaged and your clinical approach and your IFU is, is geared to professional using them. Lateral flow is a big switch for me in that you have to design them for people and you have to think about things differently because they're not necessarily trained. That's the whole point. They need to be easy to use, intuitive, but a lot goes into that from a design standpoint and a packaging standpoint, but also a regulatory standpoint. So our clinical trials will generate clinical data showing concordance to PCR tests for positive and negative samples. But a big piece of it is usability, where we have to bring in people who are naive users and show that we've designed a test that basically they're not going to screw up. And so a whole bunch of design on human factors and usability has gone into that. And then that then converts into all of our packaging as well, as you said, with a nasal swab in our case being sterile. But then because of the novel nature of our tests, you know, part of the reason we're able to get it to be so sensitive is we have an extra ingredient that most of the current tests don't have. So we have to test the usability of, of someone administering that. But there are things that are light sensitive, that are humidity sensitive, temperature sensitive. And how do we, how do we package that in a way that is user-friendly, not prohibitively expensive, but also is stable, right? Because you need six months, preferably a year of shelf life. So a lot of packaging elements come into this as well. Of, and all of this has to come together into a $5 test. Right? So, <laughs> That's always know, the problem, right? When you're selling a $100,000 instrument or even $200 reagents, there's a lot of room for, okay, well, my foil nitrogen-filled package costs an extra dollar, but who cares? Well, if the total cost of goods is a dollar, adding something like that is a problem. So it's presented some interesting challenges that I hadn't kind of seen before, but it all comes together in a way that, um, and it's part of picking the right manufacturing partner as well. So Senzo is still very small. We're manufacturing in-house and we'll do that for our clinical trials and sort of initial commercial launch, but ultimately we need to partner with a contract manufacturer. And so all of those packaging and design and tech transfer details go into who you pick as a partner as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We, we talk about the value of vendors often at our company. Those are challenging. I mean, imagine medical device companies that are packaging a cannula worth uh, 20 cents and they're putting it into a containment system that has all the regulatory girth of a heart valve. It's hard for these companies to kind of get their head around that. Not only is the packaging mechanically expensive, but all of the tech upstream, the cost to uh, have all the PhDs in-house and all the regulatory people that are granting the validation and all the endless stalls. I'm a, I'm a big protector when cocktail parties, when we start talking about the cost of medical devices, I've schooled more than several hundred people probably over the years about what it takes to get that device safe and sterile to the point of care, all the developmental piece to it, the regulatory challenges, competitive issues, 
as we said earlier on, it's a challenging market at times. And I think that's another thing. One of the ways that we deal with testing that is critical, whereas ISO 17025 lab, and I validated all of our processes by doing a redundant second check of all of our calibrations. So I think one way it seems that diagnostic companies for these systems are sort of validating their process or helping to try to manage that accuracy is by offering a second kit. So you have another data source that you can aggregate and and hopefully get a, a stronger position of where you are. Do you, is that something that you do with your system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you're right, there's varying different parts of the quality aspect and the regulatory aspect. So we need to do certain things to get C marked or get FDA approval. But as part of that, you need your your manufacturing systems, your QMS, your quality systems to all align and also be able to pass all the auditing of those regulatory bodies. And a lot of different things go into that. My past role before Senzo, we were fully integrated, so we did all the manufacturing ourselves. But you look at the raw materials coming in, finished goods coming out, all the challenges around that, auditing suppliers, supplier management. And I think at Senzo, on a smaller scale, and initially if we do the, the third-party manufacturing, exactly, you need to pick someone who has all those certifications. You don't want to be pigeonholed to be only able to manufacture to sell in a specific market, but then making sure that as they convert a line over, for instance, to manufacture a product, that all the raw materials coming in aren't, aren't a challenge. A lot of supply chain issues, especially because we're looking worldwide for a partner. So we can look in the US, we can look in Europe, we can look in China. And it's one thing getting product out, but it's also getting raw materials in and and just the general challenges around that just logistically, but then also being able to or having to do that under a, an ISO quality system adds to the complexity for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, through this whole process, the ARG, this product, what's the biggest takeaway <laughs> in terms of a lesson, maybe good or bad? What did you discover along the way? I always ask this question. We hear a lot of different answers as I hear, I speak with a lot of innovators that started with their cocktail napkin drawings all the way to the point of care in a product. Amazing journey. Everyone seems to have their own stumbling blocks and victories. Maybe you can share with us some of your stories or what is your biggest takeaway? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the word that always pops into my mind is elegant. By that, I mean something that is powerful and brings something new to the table, but also is relatively simple, mm. uh, think is very valuable. And Or don't be afraid of things that are what seem like small tweaks on something that is well-proven. Sometimes evolution is better than revolution to get to the end goal. And so that's what I love about the kind of the space sensors in right now, in, in that you alluded to this earlier, but lateral flow and diagnostics in a way. Unfortunately, it's because of a pandemic, but they're having their moment, right? Most people's total lifetime exposure or thinking of diagnostics is like once a year when you get a cholesterol test or your experience with a lateral flow is a pregnancy test, basically. Mm -hmm. right. And that has changed. So now everyone is very aware of, of diagnostics. And I think and I think at-home diagnostics with the lateral flow test or PCR, but just I think people are much more aware of the process and how how diagnostics can be incredibly important in helping healthcare. I think it's also exposed some of the deficiencies, right, of 
at various times three and five day turnarounds on your results or whatever it may be there. It's also exposed some limitations of, of how the system works currently. And I think the FDA is part of this as well. I hope that Scott Gottlieb has talked about this a bit, but how this has kind of hopefully opened up the FDA a little bit and probably thought leaders and healthcare professionals as well, that having diagnostics and having people have a bit more of a hand in how diagnostics are administered and discussed makes a lot of sense. And so long way of saying, I, you know, I like the space of the rapid test lateral flow area because I think on a macro level, the world is probably much more open to that than maybe two years ago. Really, what I like about it is the technical risk is pretty low. And even in cases where you're, you're certainly going to not be able to do some test, either it needs to be quantitative or the sample type doesn't work right, we're going to come across a test where we just can't make it work. But the reality is <laughs> maybe the lesson here is there's a lot of value in failing fast when mm. you fail. Failing fast and failing cheaply versus a 10-year bleed, mm-hmm. I think, has a lot of value. And that's what I like about this platform. We'll know very quickly, yeah, we can do that or no, we can't do that. And if we can do it, okay, yeah, we got to optimize and you got to generate the data and stability and all those things. But it's not likely to be a five-year endeavor of just let me try one more time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we at our company, if we have anything going for us, it's agility. I think a lot of companies are sluggish. The problem when you're gathering data analytics on a, and I have several patents, has always been on these slow turn processes. By the time you gather the data and you're ready to act on it, there's a whole new fresh data set that's no longer contemporary. And they're constantly trying to get ahead, but they're always one step behind. I'm one for, you know, I just wrote in a blog the other day, a friend of mine says I'm the kind of person that would read a how to fly manual as I'm taxiing down the runway, which I think is a great compliment, by the way. There's a lot to be said for that. And the other problem that I see with and, a lot and of- the how and while you're flying. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So, you, you know, you've got to be a little bit, you know, you can't be too risk adverse in this space if you really want to come up with amazing things. I think a lot of that sort of traditional boardroom innovation is dated, particularly in a very dynamic market, certainly during something epic like a pandemic. So for us, we really, as you say, you know, find out fast, get that data quickly and see if it's going to work. Typically, you know what you know on the early days. And I think another problem for a lot of companies is once they innovated, they're not through, they tend to keep on innovating. And I think it was Thoreau that said, a man is measured by the amount of things that he can leave alone. And I think people tend to keep tinkering when the innovation was done. Well, you know, and particularly when it comes from the innovative mind, because we're never through. I'm always adding another wing or a button or something that could just be on there to make it a little bit better. It kills the trajectory of the launch. And it also, the cost of the product begins to uh, not make sense anymore. So I think it's so important that fast turn sort of mindset and innovation. And, you know, a lot of times something, I've had several patents and I'm brave enough to say this, that I introduced to the marketplace and they just scratched their head. It made no sense to them. So sometimes you have your own sort of worldview where you believe that the market shares that. So sometimes you have to go on a hunch. I've talked about this before in this podcast about who knew that we needed watches that would give us our our sleep score that wasn't in our requirement. We weren't asking for these things developed through an innovator who felt like this is something that you want. Seth Godin talks a lot about 
the real innovator comes telling you what you want rather than responding to a question you're asking. And I think that's true in innovation. How about you? It made me think of two things. I mean, I joke about this, but you know, when you're trailblazing, sometimes you blaze a trail and you get to a spot and no one's been there before and and it's great and you you were up ahead and you saw things that no one else saw and you create a market and and all is great. Sometimes you blaze a trail and get to a place no one's been to and there's a reason no one went there before. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Found that one. The hard part's knowing the difference between those two sometimes, mm-hmm. but you know, I think the other thing from a product development standpoint is it's really important. You don't want to be overstructured because I think you do want to be nimble and flexible, as you said, and you want to be able to pivot. But there's a lot to be said to having a project plan and a here is what we're targeting to get to. This is what we all agree would be technologically important. And this is a product that if we got to here, we would launch it and we would do well. Right. And that's the best thinking at the time. And so then you set your project plan and your R&D plan against that. I think the danger I've seen is both directions, right, where you are approaching there or get there and you can do it what you described, which is, hey, we got here pretty easily. Let's push a bit more and let's add on a whole bunch of stuff before we launch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's one danger where you almost get greedy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and maybe you'd be better off just going with the original product profile. Or you do it the other way, which is you get 80% of the way there, you can't get the rest of the way there, and you try to convince yourself that you should still launch the product. And that's equally dangerous because Mm -hmm. the reason you presumably came up with the target in the first place, and it's never fun that you can't hit the target, but pretending that you did and then trying to wedge your way into a market generally doesn't go well. Yeah, and I think, you know, also... Having the willingness to pull the ripcord, I think it's called the sunk fund, where you have so much invested both mentally, emotionally, personally, financially, that you just feel like, my son's this way. He can't lose. If he loses on anything, it just destroys him. And I think a lot of development teams that are there are like, well, no, we're going to see this thing through. I don't care how stupid it is. We're going to keep on moving forward. You do need to know when to say when. And as you say, sometimes these things are the end of the trail, a cul-de-sac, we have to be able to recognize that, well, this is something that we have some insight now that we didn't have in those early developmental days or the ideology stage. We see them now, some new information has been presented, but people tend to deflect new information when they're in the innovation arc. They don't want to bring it in. They're like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I still think we're onto something. You got to know when you're pushing forward with great earnest, but at the same time, you do need to listen to the voices out there in the industry, colleagues, your mother-in-law sometimes. Somebody's got to tell you that, hey, you know, did you ever wonder about this? I've stopped in the middle of several innovations. Once the someone read back to me what I'm trying to do, I'm like, wow, when I hear it back this way, maybe it wasn't such a good idea. So I do think that there does need to come a time where you have to have that willingness That if all, even if you're deep into it, you've got money in it, a lot of skin in the game, you still need to have that willingness to pull the ripcord. Absolutely. And it's a hard human nature thing, right? It's the sunk cost effect. Um, It's emotional and, you know, otherwise. And I think that cuts both ways. And also in mid-sized to larger organizations, it also, this plays into management change as well, right? Where... Mm -hmm which can be good and bad because sometimes you should pull the ripcord 
and current management is so invested they can't and new management comes in and does the right thing. On the other hand, you could be 90% down a path and in great shape and new management comes in and thinks they know better and mm, yeah. you know, you pull the ripcord when you shouldn't. So that's yeah, tricky. I, as, I always yeah. think of that meme where it has the guy that's um, digging for the gold it shows his tunnel and he decides to give up and he was about three shovelfuls away from victory. And, you know, let's face it, that short of clairvoyance, sometimes it's difficult to know where that's at, but we do. Then I agree with you. We need to be in it. We need to believe in it, but we need to make those decisions early on. I think a lot of innovation or ideation happens through the course, the arc of development. Those should have been done in the early days to say, hey, let's put this through the laugh test. Let's, does this make sense? Let's ask a lot of hard questions. Then let's move forward. I see too many people mid-arc that are asking questions that should have been asked on day one. So it's a tricky balance. Innovation is tough, certainly in our space. It's difficult. We're fraught with all sorts of cost and regulatory girth. So we have to manage that. Well, we're running a little short on time, Jeremy. I'd love to get you back on here and chat some more. You're very insightful and bright. And I always love to have these kind of discussions. Any last thoughts before I turn you loose back into the wild? <laughs> no, I, I appreciate the discussion as well, Charlie. I'd ha- be happy to join you uh, again for a specific topic or just to speak in general. But, you know, there's an amazing number of people in, in this space working very hard to do great things. Proud to be part of them and happy with the work Senzo is doing and to add to uh, the innovation that, that ultimately helps everyone. Well, Jeremy, this has been such a great conversation. You know, I can't wait to see what the future is for home diagnostic system. As we said earlier on, in order to support telemedicine, which I believe is going to really change the landscape of doctor visits. I mean, let's face it, if we can stay off those hard metal plastic chairs and physician offices, we all win. So I think this is just what we need to be able to support the telemedicine calls. Obviously, we're stabbing in the dark if we don't have um, the sort of lab study piece. So this is really going to change that landscape. And I'm so excited to see what's next for the industry and Sinso. So Jeremy, thanks again for hanging out with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I can't wait to get you on the next one. Sounds good. Thank you. Hey, if you want to find out about Sinzo, just go over to their website. It's Sinzo.com. And if you want to get a hold of Jeremy, hey, that's no problem. Jeremy at Sinzo.com. Well, medical device manufacturers and medical device packaging professionals, as always, we really appreciate your support. Our little podcast continues to grow each and every month. This is Charlie Webb. And look forward to having you back on the next episode of Spot Radio. This podcast is made possible by Vanderstahl Scientific. Executive producer, Lisa Wasberg. Director of Media Service, Hector Garcia. Audio engineering and editing by Joel and our friends at East Coast Studios. And this is Jonathan Lockwood saying thanks for your support, medical device manufacturers. See you next time on Spot Radio. Spot Radio.